Hello, Factor 2022. Welcome to the Talk Spot. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. And uh, it's great to see actual scientists in person. It's been a long time since we've had in-person conferences. It's sort of like, it's been quite high quality as well, the talks that we've had. It's almost like there's been all this pent-up scientific energy just waiting to burst out, and, and here it is. <laughs> <laughs> and the theme for this conference, as you know, is new directions in toxicology, fresh approaches to old problems. And we've seen a lot of fresh approaches over the last couple of days, some uh, new instrumental techniques. Uh, some drug trends, which were very surprising. Yeah, machine not, learning. Well, I found fascinating the fact that there was, although there's these new benzos, they were the same in every single state across Australia. So everyone that reported them had the same benzos, which is means that we're getting the same results everywhere and there's maybe a single source, I don't know. Is that reassuring? No, no, no. I don't know. But, I don't know what it means. But what we're going to do is... We're going to flip this theme on its head a little bit, and we're going to talk about some old approaches to fresh problems. Because we're getting a bit on, aren't we, Tim? Yeah, get ready for the old man takes. Yeah. This is where we bring them out. We're not that old, but you know, we did used to bleed ourselves to get blank blood. I mean, that was you wouldn't do that these days. We used to bleed it into fluoride preserved tubes. And we did. We had to stop doing that. Um, <laughs> we, and when I started, there was also a part in the SOP for doing liver, um, for doing stomach contents, that you had to smell the, the stomach contents before you analysed them, because that was just part of an old analysis. But we eventually took it out because no one ever did it. So now you just do it for fun. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> so all right, let's talk about some old approaches to fresh problems. What about extraction methods, Pete? Well, for a while there, back in the old days, we used to just do generalised extraction methods and. Things like protein precipitation, they were pretty common back when LCMS first started up. But then people were starting to worry about matrix effects and things like that, and then uh, that really started getting people to clean their extraction methods up, and things started getting a lot more specific. So SPE took off and, and things like that. So we're just moving towards more selective and more cleaner extracts. But now there's probably too many drugs to do that, and we, we want to be more flexible in our, in our generalised extraction. So now we're actually going back the other way and using older techniques. So Yeah, we've seen talks here looking for hundreds of drugs in an extraction, and it's very difficult to do that when you're using something as selective as SPE. I remember when I uh, presented, I think it was, might have been my first presentation at a TF conference uh, in Florence in 2015, and I presented a drugs and driving method that we had for oral fluid. Just three drugs, meth, MDMA, THC. And that was using supported liquid extraction. And I remember someone saying afterwards, why use supported liquid extraction? That's old technology. You know, use SPE. It's, you can do so much more with it. You can adjust the chemistry, which is true. Like, that was a valid point. It's only three drugs. Yeah, you could, you could use SPE for that. And even though THC is a little different to, you know, meth, mm. But you could do it. You could have multiple elution steps or whatever. But now, when you're looking for so many drugs, you just can't have such a targeted extraction method. That's right. And there's also other benefits that have come about from, um, so for example, protein precipitation methods. They were quite messy. But now I think instruments are getting a little more sensitive. So you can actually, rather than injecting five microliters of this cruddy sample, you can get away with injecting or diluting it more. So there's less going on your column. So you're getting a bit less ion suppression, perhaps. So... 
I think that's what's helped a bit. Yeah, I mean, we still do have to deal with iron suppression and making our instruments so dirty that they're unusable or someone's got to scrub them clean every morning. I mean, we don't want that. So there is a balance to be achieved there. But certainly when you're looking for, you know, we just had a presentation about looking for an unknown, an infinite amount of compounds, basically, NPS. Uh, you just can't do it with a targeted extraction. So I remember when I first encountered SP, um, SLE, and you're right, it is an old old technique. Earlier today we had a talk about it, it came out in the, the 60s or 70s, but it was one of my first jobs. We had to analyse some water for a, a carcinogen called um, endimethylamine or something. Nitrosodimethylamine, that's what it was. And it's actually a, a byproduct of malt synthesis, so it's in some beer and it's in um, a malt that they used in breweries. So, And they already had a method. They had a method for years. And they used – and we just thought we'd go there and have a look. And the technician in the lab, and they weren't really familiar with the method they were using. They were just following instructions. And I said, oh, how does this extraction work? And he goes, oh, we just put some diatomaceous earth in here and we just put the sample through and then it fixes it up. And I'm like, right, you're just putting some sort of earth in there and getting some results out the bottom. But, um, you know, because I thought I knew everything back then, like as you do when you're 20. I, know, I knew much more than I know now. But, but it wasn't until I came to forensics and I realised that, oh, that was probably supported liquid extraction. And they used it in pesticides for years as well. Yeah, it was ahead of its time. Mm. All right, well, let's talk about drug concentration ranges. I remember once upon a time, TF had on their website a list of drugs and their therapeutic ranges, essentially, and, and toxic and lethal, I think. It was kind of set out in a table like that. And it, it was removed. I think there was a huge controversy over it at one point, and it was removed, never to be seen again. Yeah, it was developed just to give toxicologists an idea of um, what drug concentrations you would expect, but I think people started to use it more as an interpretive tool rather than just to give them a guide, and I think um, TF decided to remove it, um, but we managed to scrape a copy of it and keep it for a while. but <laughs> I can't confirm or deny that, Pete. <laughs> um, so now? Well, now we have – it's interesting we see all these NPS coming out, and one of the things that people are trying to do, or many labs are trying to do, is generate concentration ranges for these so that you can have this kind of quick guide. You know, we've seen a lot of atizolam here at the conference. If I find an atizolam in a sample, the first thing I want to know is – well, how does this compare? I don't want to read 10 papers at that stage. I just want to know, does this compare well to what's been seen in other samples? Is it 100 times higher than what's normally seen? Is it 100 times lower than what's normally seen? And I want that in a quick little table. Yeah, like, and, and so now we've got the CFSRE and, they've, and SOFT have got their guidelines for NPS and pretty soon we're going to have our own factor guidelines. They, have, they give indications of concentration values as well. So now we've gone back full circle. Yeah, but I mean, it's there's two different steps there, isn't there? Like there's that f initial step of well, what does this mean? That's sort of directing how we're going to follow it up. Then, of course, if you're actually doing the final interpretation to your client, don't rely on those tables. I'm certainly not suggesting that, but but it's useful to have them. Sure is. Luckily, we downloaded a copy. Well, there is some controversy about whether you should bother quanting NPS, but different labs do different things. Oh, yeah. All right, yeah. let's not go into that. No, that's right. What about method validation? Method validation. So in the olden days, if you were developing a method, yep. you'd just do what you think was all right and then you'd say, that's pretty good. That'll do. That'll do. <laughs> I'll sign off on that. Yep. Uh, and that was it. And the method was validated, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, I can't, I can't say – well, I was probably pretty junior back then, but that's probably what it looked like. 
and it was definitely not a document documented quite as well as it is nowadays. But no, but then we've seen over the last you know twenty years of my career a real you know trend towards we've got guidelines now for method validation. We need to do it properly, and and I fully support all of that. We do need to do method validation properly, and we need to assess all of these different things. That's really important. But what we're seeing now is there's too many drugs. How can we possibly validate methods for all of these drugs? We've got all these MPS that we're finding and requiring labs to fully validate every concentration that they're getting for these would would mean that labs just don't want them. That's essentially what it would mean in practice, uh, which is, I don't think is a good situation. No, well, if you put... If you take all a number of drugs out of your screen, I mean, and don't look for them, then there's no NPS, right? So problem solved. Yeah, so the, well, these conferences would be half as long, wouldn't they? Yeah. With no NPS. But there has, I mean, in this, in uh, the last two days we've had here, we've had two talks where the speaker has mentioned, no, we haven't validated this yet, and I don't, I think ten years ago people would have been chucking tomatoes at them, <laughs> <laughs> um, but now people aren't afraid to say, listen. We haven't quite validated. Is you want you don't understand? There's just too many drugs to validate, but we're doing our best. And it's also, as I understand it, the 17025 standard sort of changed a little bit in recent years, where there's more responsibility put on the laboratory to to have some sort of risk assessment. So, I think that gives a little bit more flexibility for a laboratory to say, yes, we know it's not fully validated to the guidelines, but it is validated up to a certain point, and maybe the laboratory has assessed that risk and considers it. Um, not significant, but I should add that um, we are not your accreditation body, and uh, if you really want some accreditation, you should, you should see uh, seek some professional personal advice. Please. Yeah, I mean, you st should still do your best to validate that. I mean, in yeah. the forensic space, we have uh, these TOXAG guidelines that you've heard mentioned a couple of times. I'm not sure exactly what clinical labs do, but I'd be interested to hear about it later on for drugs which you don't encounter very often. But these TOXAG guidelines. Uh, for infrequently encountered drugs. Define infrequently, I don't know. Everyone just sort of makes it up a little bit. But yeah. So we should clar clarify what TOXAG. So because we work there, we know what it means. No one else means. It's it's uh, all the forensic laboratories in Australia um, meet every year or so and discuss guidelines and issues relating to forensic toxicology analysis. And so through that group, we develop guidelines um, on mass spec identification and um, validation. And, uh, and in this case... Uh, cases where there's, we have to report a result or a detection of a drug, but not necessarily have um, comprehensive validation. So that's what those guidelines are for. Yeah. So really, going back to what we we're saying at the start of this, in the olden days, it, it was really we might not have categorised it in these terms, but it really was about assessing whether the methods fit for purpose. And it, we probably wouldn't have said it like that. But that's what we were doing, and that's still what we're doing now. We've we've gone back to doing that for these drugs that we can't fully validate. And I think the main thing there is just to make that information aware to your clients. Just let, let them know, okay, this, we're reporting this result as approximate or, or however you do because it's not fully validated. Well, that's okay. If that becomes an issue down the track, well, perhaps you can go back and spend the time and fully validate it if that's something that the client wants to invest in. Hmm. And what about general unknown screening? I mean, how, how yeah. do you validate yeah. that? Yeah, how do you validate that? Yeah, I think you, you still validate it. But you just have – you can only validate it up to a point, can't you? Yeah, how do you validate it for compounds that you don't know that you don't know exist? How can you do that? I don't know. And how can you report to the client that uh, this compound was definitely not detected when you've never validated it? No, so, you can't. That's right. You've just got to say on your report, I did my best and uh, 
didn't find anything. <laughs> no, we usually say uh, no common drugs detected. Yeah, yeah, that sounds better. All right, we'll stick with that. Yeah. What about here? Let's move to an instrumental technique, LCUV. Don't see a lot of LCUV on these uh, PowerPoint presentations at conferences these days. It still has a use, do you think? Well, it, it used to be used all the time. It was just it was it was the LCMS before LCMS, and uh, now it really doesn't get used very often. But it's got well, it was very popular there because it was um, you could get spectra for every drug, and the, as uh, Fritz Pruxt told me once that. The benefit of LCUV, he was one of the pioneers in developing large screens for LCUV. He said that um, every drug has an immutable uh, extension coefficient. So you didn't have to run the standard every day. You knew that whatever that drug was going to give you exactly the same response um, whenever you ran it. So it had lots of advantages. Yeah, and it's not like we're going to go back to it for screening because it just can't separate out compounds the way NMS can. But now with the rise of all these NPS... They've all got like a thousand different isomers, and LCUV can actually be really good for distinguishing between different uh, positional isomers that you can't tell with an MS. They all look exactly the same. The other good application of LCUV is if you're, say, if you're trying to compare reference solutions. If you have, you try to do that on LCMS, it's really hopeless because you don't know where the saturation point is, and you don't know whether you're comparing apples with apples. But with LCUV, that's got a very long range, so. A very wide calibration range, or what am I trying to say? A very wide dynamic range, linear range. So you can't saturate it very easily. So you can measure two different solutions of 2,000 mg per litre quite easily. Yeah. When LCMSs go to bed at night, they dream about the linear range that LCUVs have. <laughs> Will we ever get there with LCMSs? I mean, it seems like every couple of years that goes past, we're sort of incrementally getting better with it. I'm, I'm not that hopeful, to tell you the truth. What about, we've, we've seen a few talks on this, Pete, universal MSMS libraries. That's, yes. that's not a new thing, is it? No, it's very old. So if our time-travelling toxicologist from our Bad Hair Day episode, if we go back and listen to it, <laughs> if the, they, they came forward in time and we said, look at this great work we're doing here, we're sharing mass spectra and we've got a, uh, we've got a universal thing where any instrument can read these libraries and uh, give you a mass spec match. But they were doing that. Back in the 80s, 90s. With yeah, with GCMS libraries. Yeah, the only difference is GCMS is... I don't know whether... I'm not quite sure the full story. Maybe the, maybe the manufacturers weren't competing with each other enough and they, they standardised the electron voltage so that there was, was only 70 electron volts and they tuned their machines so that they all got the same spectra. But with LCMS, it's, you can't do that because all the designs are so different and stuff like that. So that's the big issue. Well, I guess that's what – that has been the problem, right, the last 10, 15 years or so. But now we're moving back towards having universal LCMS libraries, right? Yeah, yeah we're they just exist. saying that, well, you don't get the same ratios of fragments, but generally between two instruments, the fragments are usually the same on an LCMS. Yeah, and I think we're finding – whereas with the GCMS libraries – they really did rely on having exactly the same fragmentation pattern and it gives you a good library score based on you know, how big the masses are and stuff like that. With LCMS, we know we're probably not going to get to that stage between instruments. They're just a little too different. But we're finding other ways to process that data so that we can still get good matches. The software can still show us this is a really good match. Maybe it's not relying on exactly the same parameters as it did for a GCMS. Yeah, and it gives you the confidence to go and buy a standard without buying 30 and ruining your budget. Yeah. But the other interesting thing about EI is that 
not necessarily EI, but using electron collision is recent developments in uh, one of the instrument manufacturers I saw a, a presentation of this morning, was they're actually using a combination of um, electrons going through the collision cell rather than using um, CID, so collision-induced dissociation. So you have the first quadrupole and you have the ions, or, or maybe even all the ions go through without, without isolating any particular mass. Then you'd shoot a beam of electrons into it, and instead of getting the normal collisional uh, dissociation, which is usually um, like two electron nucleophilic type mechanisms, you're now getting free radical mechanisms inside the source. And that's going to, well, apparently, I'm not selling these instruments, but apparently they give you an alternative fragmentation. So, you know, who knows, you might get a decent spectrum for buprenorphine or you might get a good spectrum for, you know, tramadol or norfluoxetine. So, but then we're heading back in the other direction again, where there's only one instrument manufacturer that's got this thing. And so it's not really any use to anyone except for them. <laughs> so we won't be able to share their information. What about, uh, here's another old approach, monitoring of drugs through hospital admissions. We've seen a lot of that here, well, haven't we? There's, I mean, in, um, as we've heard earlier in the conferences, um, hospitals in many countries already have, uh, on what do we call that, live, almost virtually real-time monitoring of patient samples. So they have um, some guy waiting in the lab with his lab coat on and his gloves waiting for a sample to come in, does a quick extraction and have a result to the clinician within an hour. Um, but it doesn't happen everywhere. And, and some clinicians say, well, you don't really need to have all the information because we treat them symptomatically. And, other, and we heard that there was some disagreement that some others do. But we've been, in Australia, it's a, quite a new thing because there's no... Uh, in most toxicology labs in emergency departments, there's very, very little toxicology performed. But... Um, we're starting to do it again. So we're combining forensic toxicology with clinical samples again, which is exciting. But you were doing it 20 years ago. Well, well, well yeah, I guess it was. No. <laughs> well, there was, was studies way back in the early 2000s that we were doing uh, back in the late 90s. Um, Adelaide, where I'm from, there was a, they were the PMA capital of the world, which is paramethoxyamphetamine. It, it killed, um, I should say, um, about a dozen people overdosed in a couple of years. And this was like... Pre-NPS almost, wasn't yeah. it? Like, yeah. yeah, so as, as a result of that, they decided to set up some monitoring programs in hospital where the samples were sent, not real time, but you know, in, within a few weeks to get a result back to them. That was called the D2s program. And then we started it back up again five years ago, four years ago or so. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard in some contexts because you know, the, over in some countries like you were talking about where there is this direct link between the universities and the hospitals that like they're just set up that way. In Australia, we're not necessarily set up that way. So it can be hard to get that collaboration happening. I mean, you need the money, obviously, but also you just need the communication. You need to find the right people to communicate, people who are passionate about monitoring these things, both clinicians and toxicologists, analytical chemists, yeah, yeah. all these different people. Yes, and there was a big study in Sweden, of course, the Strider, Strider Program. That was, that was huge. And this <laughs> I, I, I think we need a Twitter poll for the best acronym for these NPS monitoring programs because there's a million of them. Mm. Yours is the worst, yeah. Pete, I have to say. <laughs> EDAPT. EDAPT. <laughs> <laughs> what about LC gradients? So a long time ago, we used to have very long LC gradients because you had to. That's all you could do. Peaks were quite broad, you know. Uh, columns weren't as advanced as they are now. And you so just you, come off using an LCUV, so you had to have long programs? Yeah, I wasn't quite 
in the time where you had to stand there and manually inject your samples. Probably a few people in this room remember that. Uh, but but you'd have, you know, a 30-minute LC time was standard, basically. Yeah. And then over the last 20 years or whatever, we've seen a push towards really fast. I've, I've really felt that, you know, over the, the first sort of 10 years of my career, I know there was just a real push, let's get faster and faster with the LC program. Oh, five-minute runs, three-minute runs, let's get one-minute runs, let's get them all out <laughs> so quickly. And, uh, and if you can still get the resolution of the peaks, you know, because column technology is advancing. So if you can still get the peaks resolved, that's fine. And the mass spec's got to keep up as well. That's part of the problem is with the introduction of LCMS, the mass cycle timer, even though it's quite fast, if we're monitoring for so many drugs, as we've talked about, uh, there is a limit on even the mass cycle time. And if you've got a peak that's just coming out and then it's gone straight away. Miss it. Yeah, well, you've barely got time. I mean, you won't miss the peak itself. Like if you're monitoring MS and MSMS on a QTOF or if you're monitoring multiple transitions on a triple quad, you'll see something, but you might just miss that key bit or you won't get enough data points across the peak. And so as well as that, that's not the only issue. Iron suppression is the other issue that we've just learned more about over the last 10, 15 years. And we, we know if you get all your analytes coming out in two minutes, you've probably got a lot of other stuff coming out there too. You might not see it there, but it's there. You're extracting it. You're putting it on your column. It's running through the column and it's going into the source. You don't see it from then on because maybe it doesn't even ionize, but it's still there and it's still affecting things. It's still causing suppression. So I, th I think we've seen you know a trend maybe back the other way a little bit. Let's, let's extend the run times a little bit so that we can separate them out, deal with some of this iron suppression, do more with our mass specs during the life of a peak. And there's also the, the trend to go towards skinnier and skinnier columns. So the, I think 2.1 is the commonly most narrow one. There was capillary chromatography. They were trying to get that to go. But that I don't know if it didn't take off very much in talks that I know of, really. But I think if the narrower the column, the more susceptible the chromatography is to any changes in the sample. So if you've got a, a really nasty putrefactive sample with a lot of fat in it, I think the chromatography is going to get changed a lot more than it would on a, a wider diameter column. So if you have a three millimeter column, I think you, you're better off. But that's just what I think. Sure. Is it good enough? What I think? Okay, it's your podcast. <laughs> All right, well, well, let's do one more. We've got time for one more. What about using non-deuterated drugs as internal standards. So back in the day, you'd quant a benzo, you know, diazepam, and maybe you'd use alprazolam as your internal standard. Like you just use another drug. It's same class. You try and do something that's similar because then it's going to mirror what's happening in the extraction. It's going to mirror what's happening on the instrument. So it's good from that point of view. But of course, it is a drug. Like it could be in samples, right? So you'd have to go to some lengths to make sure it's not there. Yeah, so prazepam was the classic example. And that was, yep. But then someone pointed out, well, it's legal in some countries. What if they come over and they use it? You'll miss it. And yeah. So then... But yeah, so then there, there was this trend more towards, okay, you've got to use deuterated internal standards. which And they became more widely available and they became cheaper. So sure, why not? It definitely is better to use deuterated internal standards. And they're pretty easily accessible these days. I mean, no one's using deuterated internal standards for all their analytes and every method that they're quanting. That's a bit ridiculous. But still, people are, well, I shouldn't say no one. Maybe someone is. I don't know. But uh, cost a lot of money. And uh, yeah, we've so 
now we've got so many drugs that we're trying to come and we've got all these new NPS as well. So if you if you've got uh, you know you can't get a deuterated internal standard for all these things. It's not, sometimes you can barely get the standard itself, let alone the deuterated version of it. So if you're trying to quant a synthetic cannabinoid, what should you use as the internal standard? Should you use D5 diazepam or should you use another synthetic cannabinoid that's of the same class that's actually going to work the same way? Because otherwise, your D5 diazepam is going to look great. Who knows whether you're recovering your synthetic cannabinoid? And especially if you don't do any validation like we were saying before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're shooting down that point now, aren't you? <laughs> but I, I mean, the key point here though is You've got to ensure it's not in the sample. If you, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with using 5F Qmile Pegaclone to quant Qmile Pegaclone, for example. That will work very well, except you've got to make sure that it's not in the sample, which means you've got to screen for it first. So I guess we're really only talking about quanting here. You wouldn't use these as internal standards in your screen because then you really won't know if it's there or not. Now that would be foolish, I think. Yeah. So there you go. There's some... Old man takes. This, if this episode was a meme, it'd be old man shaking his fist at the clouds. <laughs> yes, I'll do that. Some old approaches to fresh problems. And then tomorrow we'll be back into the fresh approaches yes. to old problems. Okay. Thank you very much for listening to the ToxPod. Thanks. See you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.